Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course. Uh, We've mentioned Subas Chandra Bose a few times, I would say. Um, And I think it's fair to say that we haven't always been entirely complimentary of his contribution towards (laughs) the Second World War. But here we've got three young, I'm going to say historians. They are political scientists. Uh, They've studied MAs in in international relations. Um, They're historians, they're journalists, but they're three, I'm going to just say for convenience sake, and I hope Aishi, Shreya and Sudarshan, you're not going to feel offended that there's three young pioneering Indian historians. Oral historians, I should say, because they've yeah. set up the Ognijog archive. And it's fascinating. And Aishi, you're in Berlin, but Sadarshan and Shreya, you're talking to us from Kolkata, um, that fabulous city. Um, I've been there several times, a number of times, and absolutely love it. You've recently been there. January, Amdiram. yeah, which was amazing. An ex- extraordinary experience. Yeah, yeah. Incredible place to visit. And I've been to Berlin too. Yes, well, we've been to Berlin a few times, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you are all very welcome, and we've got much to talk about, so we should get on with it. Yeah. Sudarshan, we, we met at a, a thing in Oxford where I was talking about my book, Command, and you sort of collared me and said, I've been doing this project talking to Indian revolutionaries and people who joined uh, Subhas Chandra Bose's army. So tell us the story of how you came to this project and what you've done and what you've discovered. So basically, the project is um, an initiative of Oishi and Shreya. So they were the ones who, for the past one year, have been working and reaching out to people. And in fact, I would um, allow them to give the more thicker description. Yeah. My thing was that since uh, my early age and being brought up in uh, West Bengal, state of India, I have been uh, very much interested in the history of the Indian National Army. In fact, to a degree that... Um, I looked up all the documents and most of the time archival documents related to the INA and how it all panned out. And at the same time, I tried to keep a somewhat neutral stance on the developments in order to get to the meat and understand the nuances away from the propaganda and more into the real life scenarios that the people involved uh, found themselves in. So as we develop, uh, we realized that it is essentially part of the Indian freedom struggle. So when we try to look at it from, say, the perspective of the Second World War, we see that uh, often so happens that 
the war is just one phase in the indian freedom struggle and if we just look at the war it is often hard to understand why indian leaders took certain actions that they did because if we want to understand the perspective of indian freedom fighters during the second world war being somewhat hostile to the british government and the war effort mm. it is not possible to understand it unless we understand the treatment that was meted out to the indian freedom fighters after the first world war right so the rawal attack and other things which made the indian leadership skeptical of the british promises so when we look at the historiography of second world war and in india it is necessary that we look at the trajectory of the indian freedom struggle as well so as you said that when you had visited calcutta and you found that not many people were interested or aware of the second world war mm. but uh, if you might have asked them about if they knew about the august 1942 quit india movement the august revolution in india you might get somewhat more responses to them because that's what appeals to them more that's what they are aware about more yeah and that's what has been handed down by their families across generations sure so there is a little a funny analogy that we give that imagine yourself going to the market to purchase vegetables and if you ask the vegetables in their scientific names i guess the grocer is not going to give you any positive response <laughs> so if we ask them about world war 2 will uh, they will draw a blank but if we ask them about indian freedom fighters and the august revolution then you might get somewhat more responses than otherwise so this yeah. is the general background and i would leave it to oashi and shreya to give the lowdown on their project sure so if if i may start so ognijok archive is basically an oral history project that we started a uh, year back in 22 month of july and this yep. is a project that is aimed at digitally documenting the tales of the indian revolutionaries i mean most of the revolutionaries are not alive anymore because the time span that we are covering runs from 1900 to 1947 almost like in 47 the revolutionary movement technically was no longer alive after 1935 but its remnants did survive till uh, india's independence in 1947 with a lot of revolutionaries we see joining later branches of the movements like the INA a lot of them being jailed and that also had an impact on uh, you know they were jailed in the islands uh, of Andaman and Nicobar which was an island that was captured by the Japanese during the second world war led by the you know in 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 collusion with the INA so in this way we realize that although it started as a project to document the stories of the revolutionaries but the other socio contextual historical factors like the two world wars both kind of you know interplay into it and is there a sort of network of people who are connected with one another who who know each other and are able to say so you meet one family who have a set of stories they say you need to talk to these other people is that how it works is that how you've how you've sort of put, pasted it together yes it actually started with the visit to the house of shipshankar ghosh whose father uh, kalicharan ghosh was the secretary of sharod bose who was the brother of nidadi subhash chandra bose who was there, who went on to be the leader of ina but prior to that had revolutionary connections so he gave us the contact details of uh, the daughters of two revolutionaries like one of the revolutionary shanti and shuniti they had uh, shot this particular magistrate called charles stevens in the district of kumela in bangladesh so shuniti yeah. choudhury's daughter bharati singh her contact was shared uh, with us by this man uh, kalicharan ghosh's son that is shankar ghosh and from there on we got in touch you know we we kind of you know each families maybe all the families did not know each other but it was like a network and some of them did know each other rest of it was of yeah. course an 
us reaching out to people and it was very surprising to even find that we had a lot of friends who had uh, you know revolutionaries and freedom fighters who were their uh, forefathers and grandfathers and they were not aware of it we kind of dug it up you know found a descendant here and there and later informed them about this in this way we also came across the family of uh, Rash Bihari Bose who was actually the initial founder of the Indian National Army who later handed it over to Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose so his niece was one of our very first interviewees and then and we also spoke to Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose's daughter Anita Bose Paff who's currently in uh, settled in Germany and you know this was again a contact that we got from Sharad Bose's son that is her her cousin Chandra Bose so you know some of the families were related but i think there's a bigger uh, picture at play because when we look at the recruitment even in some of the recruitments in the INA or among the revolutionaries it used to take place through different kinship bonds also and some of the kinship bonds have actually survived this fellow revolutionary feeling and that was also one of the ways you know we kind of dug up those contacts it's, it's surprising to see how 80 years back you know somebody's father had worked with somebody and even now the current generations are still in touch with each other right so that was how we kind of went about and we had before we knew it we had almost 80 plus uh, interviews with us I mean, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, Gosh. I can understand why people would be revolutionaries and want to kick out the British. I, t I totally get that. What I don't understand is why anyone would think that putting yourself hand in glove with the Japanese is a good idea when you look at what the Japanese have done in China, in Southeast Asia, elsewhere. Do you know... <laughs> The fact of the matter is many, many, many more people volunteered for the Indian Army than did for the INA and were absolutely instrumental in ensuring that Japan never got a foothold in India, apart from in, you know, Manipur State and, and briefly up in um, in Nagaland. But, I mean, those are the only two areas. The, the rest of the vast subcontinent of India was saved from the undoubted catastrophe that would have followed had Japan got hold of India. And the role of the Indian Army and Indian volunteers in that was incalculable. I mean, you know, it, it was an Indian victory in 1945 that enabled, that pushed the Japanese first out of India in the summer of 1944, um, Northeast India, and then out of Burma I I into 1945. So why is it that, that Indians aren't keen to talk about that amazing contribution to their future independence? So... It's actually a very open debate in India about supporting the Japanese or not. In fact, we can see two divisions in the Indian freedom struggle itself about whether we should uh, support the Japanese in the invasion of Indian subcontinent or not. In fact, if we look at the Congress leadership, Mahatma Gandhi himself was not very keen on getting the support of the Japanese. In fact, Nehru himself uh, advised the, his followers to organize some sort of resistance groups in case if there, if there is a Japanese takeover. So if we look at this scenario, there is a division in the Indian uh, freedom fighters itself. So for others, they don't see any difference between the British rule and the Japanese rule in India. So they are actually willing to take the chance to take the help of Japanese to set up a free near puppet regime of sorts, because for them, anything at that time would be better than the current British regime in India. So that's their logic. It's not absolutely foolproof because there is a dissent within India itself. Well, one is one's thinking about the, you know, you're thinking about the rape of Nanking, for example. I mean, yes. the, the British, at their very worst, weren't going around bayonetting people and, and raping and pillaging. Yeah, but, but Jim, I think that's easy for us to say from the perspective of if you factor in what the British call the Indian mutiny, which is not even 100 years ago, 
If you factor that into the Indian understanding of the British Empire and what Indians need to do to get away from that, maybe I can I can see why there's a debate. I can see why there would be. You could completely compare that with Japanese cruelty. What happens at the the end of the mutiny? From a British perspective, obviously there is this this sense of well, it's obvious that the Japanese need to be dealt with. But from an Indian perspective, it's obvious that the British need to be dealt with or got rid of one way or another. So I'm more inclined to sort of uh, sit on the fence about this. I mean, when you speak to to these people and their families. What are they saying? Are they saying, and we got it right, it was the right thing to do and the outcome speaks for itself? Or are they saying we were profoundly conflicted about siding with the Japanese or this was our only option? So uh, there were these two sides and a lot of these revolutionaries who were actually held hostage for a very long time in the Andamans and the Senyulitrian to be particular, had actually, they had access to communist literature. And a huge section of them had turned communists. And this section was vehemently against the Japanese coming into India and also Subhashan Rabos in turn. So a large section of these, again, were from Chittagong, who were arrested as a result of the Chittagong armory raid. And uh, there were leaders like Kalpana Dutt, who was one of the two female leaders involved in the Chittagong armory raid, and also other senior leaders who kind of resisted and they organized, they helped organize people against the Japanese and they made it impossible for INA or the Japanese to enter through Chittagong. That was one section. And the other section, even with Subhashin reports, we hear of reports where uh, the INA clashed with the Japanese army in terms of what should be done. Because even when the INA and the Japanese entered Andamans, the Japanese army was not particularly very nice to the natives there. And there are reports of violence, including rapes and assassinations. So this conflict always existed. However, the INA had to, and Subhashin Rabos again had to join hands with uh, Japan and even Germany at that time because his main aim was to get rid of the British at any cost. Uh, here, if we may share a story that we found in the course of our interview. So this is an uh, excerpt from a diary entry written by one of the INS soldiers whose grandson we spoke to. So the name of the soldier was Rangolal Ghosh. And he describes one incident which kind of brings forth this Netaji-Japanese conflict taking place in Burma. That Netaji was also not entirely sympathetic to the Japanese. And if something was wrong there, he would actually voice this. So the story goes something like this. That uh, is a story set in Burma. And this Rangolal Ghosh was waiting outside Netaji's office there. And the woman, an Indian woman, comes crying to Netaji. And uh, Netaji on seeing her asks, you know, what's wrong? And she says that my husband has been taken away by the Japanese soldiers uh, and said that, you know, he he's a spy on the, on the suspicion that he's a spy. And I haven't eaten anything for the last two, three days. Could you please help me get back my husband? So Nitaji takes her to a separate room and gives her some food and then says, give me a second and then calls up some of the uh, higher ranking INA officers, gets in touch with some of the Japanese officials. And this is something that Mr. Rangolal Ghosh actually hears Nitaji saying. And that in a, in a, in a very, you know, in a harsh way tells them that, you know, what is wrong? You, you have, you've got to release this woman's husband. And what exactly are the charges that you'll have pressed against him? And gets the answers and tells the woman that uh, your husband will be released. And says to the other officers standing around that, 
I am not going to tolerate this kind of behavior to my countrymen, even if it comes from the Japs. And this is exactly what Rangulal Ghosh wrote in his diary in his native language in Bengali. And within the next two to three hours, this husband was released. So even so, we see a very interesting dichotomy there that also that although Netaji was, you know, you know, kind of acting with the Japanese or receiving the Japanese help, but he was very clear on this stance that you know, if it was his countrymen that were in you know, whose lives were on the line, or you know, who were being mistreated by the Japanese, that he's not going to have any kind of tolerance towards that. So we kind of find the story a little interesting to show the dichotomy inside that as inside the INA as well. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, that is interesting. And to support that with documentary evidence, you can we can always uh, fall back on the reports or the memoirs where there has been clear indication of Bose not agreeing to all Japanese actions in the Far East. In fact, he was very much critical of the Japanese actions in China. So uh, it was an alliance of necessity, so to speak, and uh, it did not mean agreement on the ideological level. In fact, um, Many would still go on to say that uh, Bose was still a communist, uh, despite having um, made a, an alliance with the Axis powers. And this is all well documented and like history books have already been written on that. Yeah. I mean, after all, the Soviet Union made an alliance with fascist powers um, at the start of the Second World War. So such alliances are part of the texture of the Second World War anyway, of the decisions people make to achieve their political aims. Uh, 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 in a sense, it fits within the chaos of the times, doesn't it? It's not so remarkable in a way. After all, the British communists have a very difficult time um, at the start of the Second World War because the, because the Soviets have aligned with the Nazis and they have to then no longer criticise the Hitler government. You know, They find themselves very much wrong-footed by that until obviously the Germany attacks um, the Soviet Union and then they have to change sides again. This is all part of the sort of complexity of the questions people are facing, isn't it? And this actually continues even in independent India, because we find that often to make governments in the center as well as in some states, the extreme right and extreme left parties came together to form a coalition to form the government. So this is not something very much alien to India either, even yeah. after independence. Yeah, I suppose my, my earlier point, though, was less your Bengali revolutionary and more directed at Subhas Chandra Bose. The fact that he's saying, you know, I, I condemn what the Japanese are doing in China. Oh, well, that's okay then. I mean, <laughs> they'll be fine when they get to India. I mean, I know he wants to get the British out at any cost, but but you have to be careful what you wish for, don't you? I mean, the idea that the Japanese are going to be more benign or, or, or less horrific than the British is obviously very naive. And, and my point is that someone like him, he would know that. A Bengali revolutionary might not, but someone like Subhas Chandra Bose absolutely would know that. So it seems to me a, a very high-risk compromise. And the compromise was also not very well received in the domestic scenario as well. Here, if I may just share a very personal family history that we, we were discussing last night. So from my mother's side of the family, a lot of my uh, grandfather and his brothers were a part of a lot of these early communist trade unions in Calcutta. And they were so vehemently against Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose. And I'm talking about the late 1930s when he was still in India. You know, the Jap coalition has not started or something like that. 
even then you know like uh, there's this anecdote which goes that he has come to talk at a meeting and uh, you know these people were actually planning to throw a chair on him <laughs> so so and and these these are things you know even later you know when we are in the 40s and we see you know even within my family because as i said you know my mother side of the family was very active in this teachers union and other things they kept saying that you know this is a fatal mistake and if the japanese come to india they're just not going to be any way better than the british and this was an opinion that was held by quite a lot of people in the general public at that time and i'm talking about the 40s so if we talk about the public opinion we can very well see that not everybody was you know very inclined at supporting bose or the, the wave was not very much in favor of him and uh, on his political calculations like if we look at bose's entire escape from india uh, his initial idea was to take advantage of the nazi soviet non aggression pact mm. get the soviets to allow indian pow's to march through afghanistan into india and then liberate india so that was his initial plan wow as he uh, reached uh, the frontiers of afghanistan uh, he realized that things are not going according to the plan and the soviets gave him the cold shoulder so he found the next best alternative which was the nazis even they were a bit reluctant so the italians gave him the passport to travel to berlin and then make his case but then uh, hitler opened the second front and he was like well there goes my uh, afghanistan plan so then he travels through the entire submarine to japan and then uh, sees that well there is a indian sizable indian pow there and if we can arouse them then it will at least make a political statement and will make the british think again about their uh, regime in india yeah so rash bihari bose was also one of the key leaders of the indian independence league and the provisional indian government what connection is rash bihari bose to subhas chandra bose Yeah, so basically, uh, Rash Bihari Bose was an early Indian revolutionary who was very active during the First World War, and he was the one who orchestrated the, you know, the planned assassination on Lord Hardinge in nineteen eleven in New Delhi, where they had planned, uh, uh, you know, along with another revolutionary Boshanto to throw a bomb at Lord Hardinge, and that was during, you know, when the New Delhi capital was being inaugurated. So after that, he was also very active in the in organizing the Ghadar uprising in the nineteen during the First World War in nineteen fourteen nineteen fifteen. from there he escaped from india to japan and it was there that he continued living for the rest of his life until his death in the 1940s so this was just before his death when subhash chandra bose had you know managed to escape to japan he had uh, already set up a sort of a structure of the indian national army that is mr rash bihari bose and because he was already old and he was almost dying he handed it over to the newer generation of uh, leader that was nedadi subhash chandra bose you can share some anecdotes that we collected with the, in conversation with his niece so uh, talking of the first half and the attack on lord hardinge so at this time rash bihari bose was actually working as a senior tr with the government of india in dehradun uh, the indian forest research institute and he kind of orchestrated this plan and in the same evening went back to his institute so after a couple of days when lord hardinge was still recovering he had visited the institute to rest there for a while because dehradun was a nice cold place and at that time actually the same evening when uh, rajkumari bose went back he had organized a protest against these revolutionaries saying how can these people you know attack someone like lord hardens and then when lord hardens actually visited this institute he went to him with flowers say, with a get well soon message 
So Rashmihal Bose was also known as a master of disguise. So he was the own one of the only uh, famous freedom fighters and revolutionaries in India who was never arrested. The British could never catch him, and he uh, left for Japan. But uh, he also has a greater role in Netaji's career, so to say, because he actually interviewed Asha San, who was a part of the Rani of Chhansi Regiment in the Indian National Army. And she jo- she's currently 95, but she joined at the age of 16. And her parents had a role to play in Netaji's great escape from India. So basically, Asha San's mother is the niece of Chitranjan Das, who was the uh, mentor of political mentor of Netaji. And this is uh, late 1930s. So, uh, and uh, Netaji is already facing conflicts with the Congress Party. So, uh, Rashmihari Bose, uh, because uh, Asha San's father was uh, again a freedom fighter who had uh, gone to Japan to help in the movement. And uh, through this person, uh, Rashmihari Bose had sent a message that uh, you need to ask Bose to leave the country because there's very little he able to do from within. So, they kind of created a bit of drama. Within the family, so Asha San's parents, uh, they created a scenario where it seemed like they were getting separated. And they had three children. Asha San was the oldest. She had another sister after that and a very young brother at that time who was almost an infant. So Asha San's mother, Sati Sahai, who was the niece of Chitranjan Das, she moved back to Calcutta with her two younger kids. And this uh, there was this image given to the people that they probably they will probably go through a divorce, etc. And she uh, was living in this apartment alone with her children because she couldn't go back to her parents because then they will again be facing surveillance. And then uh, in the middle of the night, because uh, Netanchi's and uh, Chitranjan Das's families were very close, they were almost like families themselves. And Subhash was like a cousin to the mother of Ashasar. So in the middle of the night, uh, she visited the boss household and met Netaji, where she said that this is the message for you and you need to leave. So usually we hear that the plan of the great escape was made after Netaji was arrested finally in India and then he uh, left. But this was actually planned a year in advance. And after that message was passed and then she again went back to Japan, And that is when Netaji actually started plotting how to leave the country. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. The lives these people live, the sort of uh, the scheming and the... I mean, it, it is interesting, though, that there are so many currents running. This is, this is a thing in revolutionary movements, isn't it? That's a pattern, is that, is that people disagree, they split off, they do their own thing, they have to turn their backs on their families, they have to keep their lives secret... It's very interesting to hear that this is what you're discovering. And, and I suppose you'll find groups within groups within groups within groups. And he or he never agreed with me. And families who are obviously families who are completely at loggerheads about 
this stuff, which is what ideology does to people and can do to people. Are there still people you've spoken to who are still angry about events and the things, the way things panned out now, still passionate about it, or have the fires dimmed with the passage of time? This is a very, very interesting question there because we spoke to so many families of the revolutionaries and some of the families, we do see the anger still there. Like we know this one revolutionary, Loknath Ball, who was a part of this Chittagong Armoury Raid, which is dubbed as the Easter Rising of India. It's the Chittagong Armoury Raid took place on 18th April 1930. And uh, the leader, one of the leaders of the uprising, Loknath Ball's uh, son, Himadri, Himadri Ball, Dr. Himadri Ball, he was absolutely, he's still so furious about Charles Tegart, who was then the police commander commissioner of Calcutta. And if you talk to him, you can still feel the seething anger that, you know, the, what they did was not right. And you know, even during the course of the interview, we saw so many people break down and say, you know, what the British did to us, we can never forgive them for that. And it is often very difficult for, you know, anybody to make them understand perhaps that, you know, it's been 80 years, but, you know, if the damage was on your family, you know, your house was looted, cut it down, you know, your family members were just taken away and things like that. I mean, those kind of anger is still very much there. But there's also parallel anger about what happened in the partition. So yes. these are two twin angers that's very much persistent. Well, when I was in Calcutta um, in January, I was making a program about the legacy of British Empire. And the thing that people all agreed on is that partition is the great crime. People could have differing views about aspects of empire and aspects of Anglo-Indian relations and different outcomes from various situations. But partition, without doubt, is regarded as unanimously as the great crime, as the great terrible British error that makes all the other, for some of the people I spoke to, that made all the others seem sort of irrelevant. It's the last thing the British do in India, and it's as careless and as callous as it is. And that and that's enough for them. And it's almost how bad partition is proves in the end why India was better off being away from the British, because that's what the British truly like. Their last gesture is that callous and that um, appalling. I mean, I, that, that was the thing. I mean, I also spoke to people in Calcutta who were, who were very unhappy about the fact that it was run by communists in the 80s, 80s and 1980s, really. And they were very unhappy. They were business people and they didn't like that one bit. So in a strange way, they were nostalgic for kind of British things because at least it wasn't communism. <laughs> but nevertheless, partition was the great, the great crime. And I think that's what's really interesting is, is that that's the strand that unites everything. And I, 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 I mean, my feeling about it is that if you really want to know what the British thought of India, look at partition because that's, what, that's really what the British thought of Indians. They thought they could do that to them. There's also a very interesting revolutionary turned refugee dichotomy. Mm. That is, a lot of the revolutionaries were actually from what was what later became East Pakistan and Bangladesh. Like we spoke about yeah. the Chittagong uprising, the thing, the the, the assassination of Charles Stevens and Kumela. Yeah. The Dhaka was one of the nerve centers of the revolutionary activities. So we often saw a lot of these revolutionaries after partition came to India as refugees. So we are. I mentioned the house that I first visited. And Loknath Boy was actually very close to this family after independence when they moved to this part of Bengal, etc. Again, as she said, it's very important to note that a very large section, a major part of these revolutionaries were actually from Eastern Bengal, where, which they basically lost their homes in a country which they fought to free. So, uh, this is years later when Lokrat Bond has grown up. He was 22 at the time when he waged that war on the kingdom. 
and uh, he actually told uh, Kalisharan Ghosh, and this is around 1947-48, India has just become free. Uh, so he had a younger brother, Tegra, who was 13 years old at the time of the Chittagong Armory Raid in 1930. And he was one of the first martyrs in that battle. Uh, and there, there is the story of how he asked for his last sip of water, called out to his brother and asked for his last sip of water when he was shot. And this brother, because he was at that time leading that war, uh, and he could not value personal emotions at that time. So this 22-year-old boy turns to him and says, there is no brother in war. You know, if you're here, you have to die like a hero. So later, he repents in 1947-48 and tells Kalicharan Ghosh that this is not the India for which I refused the last sip of water to my brother. And even uh, later, uh, for in cases of Shanti Choudhury and Shuniti Ghosh, Shanti Choudhury was from Kumilla, her daughter also said that, and it's not just about the material loss. Every single person also had a very strong psychological impact on them. And all of them kind of agreed that this is not the India we dreamed of. It's actually a very beautiful poem. You know, it's, it's, I can just say it in Bengali, just two, two lines. It's called Telir Shushi Bhanglo Bole Kukur Pore Rakkoro, Tomra Jeshwa Budokoka, Shodesh Penge Bhakkoro, Karbala, which basically translates into if a vial of oil breaks, then you blame the kid for dropping that vial of oil and breaking it into pieces. But what about you grown up men who have broken India into two parts? What, what justice do you expect that? So this is one poem that was doing the rounds, you know, after the partition where a lot of people said that, you know, that whom do you blame? So, you know, you, you basically blame this child men in that sense, you know, who has broken your country into two pieces and you talk about broken vial by a child. So this is a very impactful poem, which by another Shankar Raya Bengali poet that has always been doing the rounds and is a very big part of the partition in the East psychology and partition in the East literature, which is actually less documented than partition in the West. It is a Punjab. Yes, yes, that's I think a thing because British perception of what partition is, is isn't brilliant. I'll be honest with you, and I think people don't know that there were two Pakistans, or, or there was, you know, sort of Pakistan A and B at one point. I, I don't think British people are, are quite across that, um, and which is the most extraordinary thing um, that anyone imagined that was a political solution to anything in the late nineteen forties is is is, sent, is entirely boggling. Um, and given given Bengal's revolutionary tradition anyway, that you should end up with this sort of diaspora of revolutionaries who have to leave East Bengal. I mean, it's obviously revolutions are always complex. And with the overlay of the Second World War, the overlay of imperialism, do you think what you're dealing with here is essentially a story which you, you, you'll be able to probe into forever? I mean, will you ever find the edges of this story, do you think? Uh, if I may try on this one before. Uh, <laughs> so in this regard, finding the edge of the story is like finding the edge of India. So it's a bit hard to uh, figure out what things actually meant because one of the problems in India is that much of our things are not documented. And yeah. when we look for the freedom fighters, it's not like we have a military records that these were the people who were involved. Yeah. So the best, at best, any records that we can find is the one which are, were kept by the British police. So I'm right now sitting in the uh, campus of the provincial intelligence, which was the central intelligence for the British um, government in India. 
and all the records are kept in the building across in this yeah. town. So <laughs> the entire foundation of finding a answer is to understand how the freedom struggle developed. And I would here invoke Foucault again that ideas which have a genealogy are hard to define. And are the British relying on informants? How are they investigating what the um, revolutionary movement is? What are they doing? Are they arresting people, questioning them? Have they got informants? Are they sending spies into places? How are they? How are they keeping? T- because after all, if you say nothing's written down, and the only stuff that is written down is coming from the British. It's going to be a pretty imperfect record of of what's going on, right? You're actually, I would beg to differ because we also see a lot of revolutionaries who in the 70s or in the 60s had actually written down some autobiographical records. Like Anantolal Singh, who was one of the leaders of the Chittagong Uprising of 1930, has actually written an extensive volume of three or four books, which is called Chattogram Jubo Bidroho, which translates into Chittagong Youth Uprising. But a lot of these books have not been translated to English. So if they're written in your native Bengali, you cannot even expect people from any, even Indians who are outside the state of Bengal, whose native language is not Bengali, to kind of disseminate that information. Similarly, a lot of the revolutionaries, even, you know, like Ganesh Ghosh of the Chittagong lot, had written their own memoirs. Moyers, you know, how the, you know, what their life looked like. He has a book called Mukti Tirtho Andaman Ganesh Ghosh's, where he documents his views of, you know, what, what life was in the British prison. And I think this is a tradition that was not just a characteristic of the second generation revolutionaries who were there in the 1930s, like the Chittagong Brigade, but also of the earlier generation who actually started this tradition of writing autobiographies of revolutionaries, like say Upen Banerjee of the Alipur bomb case, which was one of the first revolutionary movements in India in 1908, or say like that of Ullashkar uh, Dot. So Upen Banerjee, in fact, is a very, very, uh, or, or Baron Ghosh, Upen Banerjee is a very detailed memoir of his life in the you know, British prisons in Andamans. Or Baron Ghosh writing his own views of, you know, how they were treated, how life conditions were. But of course, it must be noted that all of these books were published or opened to the public only after the British left India. Yeah. So that is something definitely to be noted because you could not really write those books, you know, while the British were still there. Because even a piece of fiction like Sarachandra Chattopadhyay's Pothir Dabi, which was a book about a nationalist, a fictional account was banned by the British. But yeah, the documents do survive. I mean, some of the aspects, some of the written aspects do survive. But again, there's also a question of whose memory you're talking about and how accurate that memory is. Or if that memory has been colored by any kind of political colors or any kind of later perceptions, because a lot of these revolutionaries like Kanish Khosh, Anantha Singh actually turned communist later. So well, there's also a very serious post-independence political perspective that may also seep in. Like we're not saying it always seeps in, but there's also a chance of your political ideology seeping yeah, yeah. into that autobiography. Well, it's a constant problem with oral histories is that memory is not a is not a linear thing, and and it does change and it does alternate and you know, into one's mind, you know, you think of, of things that you think are just purely your own memories, but subconsciously stuff that you've read and seen on television and all the rest of it, all that seeps in as well and starts to kind of slightly distort those memories. Uh, and from a historical point of view, that's uh, the historian's role is to try and kind of sift through that. But it doesn't mean that oral histories aren't are of, of huge value because of course they are. And whatever someone's thinking at the time they're being recorded is what they're thinking. So that that's a valid historical document, effectively, um, regardless of of whether those thoughts of those personal thoughts have sort of shifted over the over the decades. I mean, this is also fascinating. Um, how are, if people want to see what you've collated and and collected, how can how can they do that? So we have a Facebook page called Ogni Jugarkai where we share snippets of these interviews. 
Yeah. Uh, the interviews are, of course, sometimes they are as long as two and a half hours. Wow. But we're also, a website is under construction and we're yeah. kind of trying to gather funds so that uh, we can work on it. Uh, we also really hope that an educational institution uh, takes over charge of the videos so we can better preserve them. Because right now it's at a very rudimentary stage. Yeah, okay. But can I ask you all a question? Because one of the frustrations for me when, when studying the war in Southeast Asia is there's just no, hardly any testimonies from Indian soldiers in the Indian Army who played such a massive role in the victories from 1944 onwards in defeating the Imperial Japanese armies. And they just don't exist. As, as far as I'm aware, they're just they're just not there. There's no oral history program. There's there's no diaries. There's there's just nothing. And so that ends up with historians giving a very warped view because you tend to kind of accentuate the British contributions. So you know, so in a in an Indian division, you'd have three br infantry brigades, Indian infantry brigades. One which would have a, um, and in those brigades, you'd have one Gurkha battalion, one Indian um, battalion, one British battalion, and you're just missing those Indian voices, and it's really really frustrating. Are you aware of of any that exist that I haven't discovered? And and if not, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because it got overshadowed by partition and the and the trauma of partition? I'd like to give some perspective on the idea of um, memoir writing in India. Mm -hmm. So my, most of the time, like uh, when Indian soldiers did write memoirs, uh, it was either at the higher ranks when someone was a captain or someone, or someone came from a princely household. So they used to make some detailed memoirs. So they are there. Uh, those by the soldiers, the problem is that very often it was not preserved either by the members of the household and neither did the government take any interest in actively preserving them. In fact, after partition, like the government was strapped with resources. So archiving took a back seat and we were more concerned about the immediate consumption requirements of the country. So that is an issue. But there are still certain records which are with the Indian archives and uh, they are in the process of digitizing access to some of them. But um, it's uh, in the process of uh, transfer because after redevelopment of the Central Secretariat in New Delhi, uh, they are shifting the entire archives. So I'm not sure what's their uh, status at the moment. Right. In this regard, this is also a thought that just came across to this discussion. Maybe a lot of these people, you know, who were a part of the uh, British Army who were not who were fighting against the Japs in the INA, also did not maybe make their writings public because they did not know because there was after the INA, you know, the INA trials were going on when the INA has been defeated, there was public sympathy about the INA. So yeah. would you actually write that, you know, you fought against your own countrymen? How would that be received? And mind you, this is 1946. It's just a year to independence. So overall, oh, in the yeah. entire country, there's a nationalist fervor. So would you want to face that kind of an ostracization by voicing that and the British are also gradually losing power? So these are not the days when nationalist literature was being banned in the 1930s or something. Mm -hmm. So maybe that mm -hmm. was also one of the reasons that the members of the British Indian Army were not very, living in India, were not very confident about writing their own memoirs, or, you know, even if they were writing, not publishing. Yeah. Completely. I mean, the other thing is, and, and this is sort of where we started, is that the Second World War, from a British perspective, is the central event, 1939 to 1945, whereas the Second World War is part of a phase of events that has Indian independence actually lying heavily on top of it in India, as it were, you know, that 
if you're Indian, you're not thinking about 1941 to 1945 and World War II. Why would you? The seismic event? Because after all, for a lot of British people, in a way, the Second World War sits in as a kind of modern British foundation myth, the myth of Britain standing alone against the Nazis in 1940, the Battle of Britain. I mean, the fact it's even called the Battle of Britain is an indicator that it that it's central to our national national mythology. And you have independence. So, of course, the Second World War isn't central in people's imaginations. How would it be? In a way, much bigger fish to fry um, in terms of your national imagination. And, um, you know, in the same way, in reverse, the same way that British people don't think about partition. You know, it's not central in our imagination because we've just stood alone against the Nazis, thank you very much. It's it's, it's how people's nationalist imaginations operate, I think. And uh, um, that explains, I think that explains so much of how this history has come to us. And so shepherding it back into the into the sort of fold of what we know is is complicated by these things, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I would just nuance it a bit further because sure. the war was a catalyst in the Indian freedom movement of South. So it basically um, projected the Indian freedom, certain Indian freedom fighters to the center stage who later became the leaders of the free India, like Nehru and Jinnah. So it did have a very important role in the development of the Indian uh, political scenario. It did have a very uh, key role in making the leaders who became uh, important down the line. But it's just that when we invoke World War II, it's, it just uh, evokes different images compared to what is evoked in London. Yeah, but of course. it does have a very important uh, place. It us. reminds us of the Bengal famine of 1943 or the Quit India movement of 1942. It reminds us of our freedom that came in 1947. And of course, the partition that we got as a complimentary, you know, <laughs> that came along <laughs> with our freedom, basically. <laughs> so uh, for many families, I think even uh, the Netaji's, uh, Netaji Subhashandra Bose's family members, you know, the younger people told us that when they were going to school, like they were the children of such an, you know, uh, the, they were the children of a family of such a important nationalist leader even for them when they used to go to school on 15th of august after 1947 they would not celebrate it as an independence day for them even but they were not people who were refugees or who had migrated from east bengal or were victims of the partition so this kind of shows the deep rooted impact that this partition had on us and because it happened simultaneously you know on that particular day of the partition uh, of the indian of partition happening you know simultaneously with yeah. indian independence so for many people they don't celebrate partition even for the longest time my grandfather telling me you know he's somebody who had seen 15th august 1947 that you know why are you celebrating independence day there's nothing to celebrate about 15th august 1947 it was partition we just heard the cries of People coming across the border, women being raped, houses being burned, looted, and people being butchered. So I totally understand that. And I totally understand why you would think about the Free Indian Movement and the Bengal Famine. And I think it's understandable. I'm just saying I think it's, it's, it's a shame in one way that the immense courage and fortitude of a very large number of Indians who were instrumental in achieving victory against Japan in Northeast India and Burma in 1944-45, doesn't seem to be part of the major narrative. And 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 the, the reason why most of those people were fighting was not to perpetuate the British Empire, it was to get rid of the British Empire and to make sure that something worse didn't come in its place. And it's a shame that, you know, you, Sadashan, you're talking about nuance. I mean, there's some nuance, which doesn't seem to come through. And 
it's a shame there's no oral testimony for that, or not much. It's a it's a shame that that doesn't seem to be to be better known because you know in in, in my book. Those Indians who fought in the Indian Army in 1944 to 45 are heroes. I mean, they're people that should be venerated for the sacrifice they they gave. And and you know, you're talking about Indian troops who were volunteers from all across the subcontinent of India. You know, it's not just a traditional Indian Army um, peoples of of kind of northern India. It it really is from all over, and they're answering the call and they're delivering with bells on and and. That doesn't seem to be part of the narrative, and 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 I mean, you know, here I am sitting in England, so so you know, who am I to say? But but it, it, you know, surely that can fit in alongside the story of free India and and the Bengal famine and the struggles and partition and the raid on Chittagong in nineteen thirty and all the rest of it. Absolutely, absolutely, because they were doing their duties and they were doing their duties for a cause greater than the expansion of the British Empire, as you rightly said. They were trying to actually, you know prevent uh, one evil being replaced from another evil from an Indian perspective, you know, a greater right. evil perhaps. And this story never got documented in the proper sense. Perhaps it was the INA factor, you know, people feeling that the INA deserved more recognition. It was not even about question of getting more recognition or deserving more recognition, but what narrative kind of strode over the other and, you know, what was the wave at that time? What was the social political context at that time? Perhaps to people, you know, there were also the naval mutinies taking place in 1946. So perhaps, you know, if you were kind of raising your voice against the empire, that would be considered to something that deserves more veneration, more appreciation than the narratives of somebody who was perhaps fighting in the British Indian Army at that time. So it was perhaps the the what, what the situation demanded, what the timeline or what the social historical political context demanded at that time. But it's definitely one angle that has been very much buried. I mean, the accounts of the heroic British uh, Indian Army in the Second World War. Often it is said that the British Indian Army was a mercenary army. Now, that would be wrong to say on two accounts. One is that traditionally there has been coveted status given to government jobs and military was the next best thing. Uh, to a government job. So the idea was to have a foot in the government and by joining the civil service or the military, they were able to ensure that they could have a say in the government. So that was one way of looking at it. And that was the psyche behind joining the war effort. Yes, there was of course the material benefits and other things that came with it. But the key benefit for most of the people was to have the foot in the government. Yes, it's participation in the status yeah. quo, isn't it? And that's how you all, you know, working working with it to try and change it is the idea, yeah? Yeah, so, uh, and there was a political angle to the skill development as well. So when Congress was formed in 1885, the idea was to learn the parliamentary methods so that we would be skilled enough to have self-government. That was the idea at the founding of the Indian National Congress. So same was the idea for joining the Indian Army. In fact, um, as you know, India is ridden with the caste system. So many lower castes saw the army as a ticket uh, for upliftment. So we have this um, monument in Bhima Koregaon where the lower caste Nahars, the regiment, British regiment of Nahars, which were the lower caste, was able to defeat the Maratha regiment, uh, which was the upper caste in the Mara- Maharashtra region of Bhima Koregaon back in, I guess, the company days. So that was also the social upliftment on a societal level was also one of the key uh, reasons why the army was coveted and it was not just a mercenary army, so to speak. So understanding the Indian army in that perspective is important. Second, 
uh, although right now there has been a new recruitment process which has been initiated the agnivir process of recruitment which is detrimental to the regimental system which prevailed earlier and it was carried on from the british times so the development of the regimental system in the, in the indian army was also uh, key so to speak to understand the central nature of the army in the indian society and its indian psyche so these are the couple of things which needs to be delved into and then put in perspective with the larger issues of the freedom struggle and so on so these were the realities on both sides and the idea is that we still need to need to develop uh, perspective so that we can put these two together at the same time because most of the time it happens that history is written and developed in silos and we are unable to relate to them at the same time yes absolutely well thank you so much for talking to us about um i mean this is a, a an absolutely fascinating project and to our listeners will be um uh, a a completely new perspective and vista of perspectives um to think about and and for us if i'm honest um yeah oh no it's been fascinating it's been really really interesting while we were talking i've i've popped your facebook page and um there uh, it's, it's fantastic all the all the p- videos of people talking about their experiences their memories talking about their families their involvement all laid out perfectly clearly and and, and brilliantly done so um more power to you with this project i do hope you find you know institutional backing that you obviously need and that someone will give you that give you the help you need and um what one of the things i've really loved about this as well is hearing the who the, the horns tooting away in the background trio in um <laughs> on your feed because i had such a lovely time there and the constant noise of the traffic it was lovely to have a little little taste of that little memory of that so thank you so much for joining us now it's the agnijug archive and it's uh, there on facebook have a look at the the story of the bengali revolution it's um absolutely fascinating thank you so much for joining us sudarshan i want to thank you for grabbing me at that book launch and uh, making sure this happened thanks very much yeah thank you to all of you thanks for listening everybody Oishi, uh, Shreya, Sudarshan, thanks for joining us. Cheerio, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheerio. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Amari, for having us here. Oh, that was fantastic. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katie Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.